As a warning, this episode includes descriptions of violent acts and choice language that may be triggering to some audiences. Please be advised. I don't care about my job. I don't care about my house. But let me tell you one thing. This is what you're not going to do. You're not going to be bombing Z. Alexander Luby's home. That's what you're not going to do. And so they took to the streets. The black students were standing on the sidewalk, and they arrested Paul LaPrade, who was a white student. They beat him up because they were more resentful towards whites who were involved. There's no way the Grand Ole Opry could not have hosted black musicians when there was so much talented black music happening around that space. Like you're not gonna ignore someone like James Brown. Like that's just not, that's not possible. This is the Tennessee Civil Rights Trail podcast, a series where historians and experts help us explore some of the most significant events of the movement in the state. You'll also hear the real stories of the people who were there and who made a difference and why what took place in Tennessee then is still so relevant today. There's a good chance when you think Nashville, this is what comes to mind. It makes sense. The city has long branded itself around music because music is a huge economic driver. A 2022 analysis finds that the total economic impact of Nashville's music industry is more than $9.5 billion. Per capita, there are significantly more people working in and around the music industry in Nashville than anywhere else in the US. More than Los Angeles, Austin, New York City, Atlanta. Nashville is the music city, but it didn't get that name from country music. I call myself a hip hop baby. My parents like to call me a funk baby. Katie Range Briggs is the manager of exhibitions and collections at the National Museum of African American Music in Nashville. Culturally, as an African American and Puerto Rican, I realized that there was tacit cultural transmitters in my life that being food and music. Before joining the museum, Range Briggs taught high school history in South Central Los Angeles. South Central was the site of the Watts riots in the 1960s and the 1992 riots after a jury acquitted four police officers in the brutal beating of Rodney King. Range Briggs regularly used music of all genres to teach her students about history. She says you have to go back to the 1800s to really understand music in Nashville. The first short minstrel shows occurred in the 1830s in the northeastern U.S. Over the next decade, they were developed into full shows, featuring mostly white actors in blackface, performing comedy skits, variety acts, dancing and musical performances. 
They represented people of African descent as simple-minded, lazy, clown-like, and superstitious. There was a happy-go-lucky slave, the dandy, the mammy, the old darky, and the provocative mulatto Jezebel. By the 1870s, a new type of performance that was rooted in the experience of enslaved people was gaining larger audiences. The Jubilees were spirituals, many of them lamentations, with tight harmonies and a restrained musical technique that mirrored Western musical tradition. But the Jubilees were authentically Black, and the rock stars of that world in the late 1800s were the Jubilee singers of Fisk University. Fisk is the oldest institution of higher learning in Nashville. It was founded shortly after the Civil War to educate freed Black men and women. Within a few years, it was nearly bankrupt. But the university's treasurer and music instructor, George L. White, had an idea. In 1871, he started the Fisk Jubilee Singers, an a cappella choir consisting of four male and five female students. They set off on a fundraising tour along the Underground Railroad path in the U.S. It was so successful that in 1873, they took their show to Europe. They performed Steal Away to Jesus and Go Down Moses for Queen Victoria, who, the story goes, tells them, your voices are so amazing, you must come from Music City. And that, many historians believe, is how Nashville got its nickname. But it's so much more than that, as we'll hear after the break. Taking a pause here, to say that if you want to learn more about visiting important civil rights sites throughout Tennessee, from Memphis to Nashville to Clinton, go to tncivilrightstrail.com. They're a part of the full United States Civil Rights Trail, found at civilrightstrail.com. Okay, back to the story. My name is Crystal DeGregory, born and raised in uh, Freeport, Bahamas. I have called Nashville home for uh, more than 20 years now. I am a graduate of the historic Fisk University. I earned my master's and PhD both in history uh, at Vanderbilt and uh, went on to earn an, a master's in education from the Tennessee State University. So I've made my rounds in the Athens of the South. De Gregory is a research fellow 
at Middle Tennessee State University's Center for Historic Preservation. My research broadly focuses on Black education and the United States, more specifically, a higher Black education and the story of the survival and persistence of the nation's about 100 colleges and universities that bear the federal designation of historically Black colleges and universities. DeGregory says Nashville had a history of clandestine schools for enslaved Blacks for at least three decades before the Civil War. So it wasn't a surprise that right after the war ended, institutions of higher learning started opening in the city. Fisk was founded in 1866, the oldest surviving university, Black or white, in the city. It was referred to as the Harvard of the South. That same year, Rogers Williams University was founded as the Nashville Normal and Theological Institute. A decade later, Meharry Medical College started as the medical department of Central Tennessee College. Tennessee State University, formerly known as the Agricultural and Industrial Normal School, enrolled its first students in 1912. An American Baptist College opened in 1924. These now historically Black institutions were never all Black in the way in which we would think of segregation typically working. The earliest of these schools were founded either through interracial cooperation or solely by white missionaries. Almost all of the administrators were white, as were most of the faculty. And almost immediately, there were glimpses of student uprising. For example, at Meharry, where uh, students had been told, I think in the 1890s, that they should avoid wearing their white coats or dressing too well as to offend their white missionary faculty members. You know, they should take it down a notch. The students weren't happy, but they backed down in deference to the president, Reverend John Braden. But as the white missionaries teachers and administrators at these predominantly Black institutions began to die. The students became more willing to challenge policies they disagreed with. In the 1920s, there was a rumbling of dissent at Fisk University that would be a harbinger of the coming civil rights movement. The then president, Fayette McKenzie, was really, really totalitarian. I don't think it would be unfair to classify him as that. I mean, his experience with, quote unquote, non-white people before coming to Fisk was almost exclusively in indigenous school programming. And if you know anything about what happened in those schools to those peoples, you, you know that this is a man that came with quite prejudiced ideas to the context of black education. DeGregory says McKenzie believed there were only two purposes of Fisk, to teach in the classroom and in religious exercise. Everything else was pointless. He wouldn't allow social gatherings or clubs. He even disbanded the internationally famous Jubilee Singers. That was too much for him. Like, you know, he was like, no, you didn't come to school to be in an organization. You came to school to be to school, to love Jesus and do what I tell you to do. The tipping point came when McKenzie refused to allow Fisk students to join the Black fraternities and sororities that were being founded in the early 20th century. 
Again, Fisk considers itself then and now, and Fiskites consider themselves then and now, movers and shakers. And so how dare he deny them the opportunity to be a part of a move of black people in the country? And W.E.B. Du Bois, who without question is Fiss's most renowned son and graduate, came to the commencement exercises that year as speaker because his daughter, Yolanda, was graduating. And he basically just railed into McKenzie the entire time. And it was like, you know, who do you think you are? <laughs> I am W.E.B. Du Bois. Like, who do you think you are? Fisk had Du Bois and later Diane Nash one of the chief strategists of the student wing of the civil rights movement. Mahari graduated scores of black physicians, including 39 women by 1920. Tennessee State's notable alumni included several politicians who were the first blacks to hold local, state, and national offices. And American Baptist College graduated. John Lewis, 17-term congressman, and chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC. Reverend James Bevel, a strategist for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. C.T. Vivian, a field general for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. An extraordinary number of civil rights movement leaders got their start in Nashville. So many that in his book, Weary Feet, Rested Souls, author Townsend Davis referred to Nashville as the University of Nonviolence and the movement's research laboratory. At the center of it all was James Lawson, a man whom Martin Luther King Jr. called out as a nobleman. It is 1968, I've been to the mountaintop speech. In 1951, Lawson was imprisoned for refusing to register for the draft. A year later, he went as a Methodist missionary to India, where he studied Gandhi's use of nonviolence. When Lawson returned to the US, King urged him to move south, enroll in Vanderbilt's Divinity School, and teach nonviolent tactics to Nashville college students. The training was intense. Racist diatribes would be shouted at you, condiments put on your clothing and about your body, perhaps even cigarettes, uh, the smoke from them or the cigarettes themselves or the ashes uh, used as likely tools of intimidation on the front line just so that you could, again, acclimate yourself. The Greensboro Four from North Carolina A&T University are credited with the first public protests by black college students in the modern civil rights movement. But Crystal DeGregory says that's not quite right. There had been protests in other cities that weren't as widely publicized. And in the case of Nashville, were strategically not publicized because they were test exercises to see not only their own strengths and weaknesses, but to give them some context for which white opposition would present itself. <laughs> and how they could best strategize to be prepared for the opposition that they would face. Just after noon on Saturday, February 13, 1960, 124 mostly Black students entered the downtown Woolworths, Cress, and McClellan department stores and asked to be served at the lunch counters. 
by the time they had gotten to the front lines, you would have seen them there in their Sunday's best and their very best. Because again, the tools of white supremacy had for so long said, it's because you don't dress good enough. You don't look good enough. You don't brush your hair good enough. You don't have proper hygiene enough. You know, all of these things, which if you think about it, are completely ridiculous. These kinds of things are mostly attributed or tethered to one's class or economics rather than one's race. Poor white people wouldn't have been any more hygienic naturally than any other people who were poor and did not uh, maybe have the knowledge or the means to make another choice. The students also had books in their hands. So as to not just look studious, but to outwardly project their inner reality, their inner minds, their inner hearts were not just merely showing up to create a ruckus. We were showing up to demonstrate to the world that we are just as good as you are. We've done everything that you said. We've done it better in many instances. And still you would deny us the fundamental human dignities that we deserve. The lunch counter staff refused to serve the students. But the students stayed in the stores for several hours without incident. The following Monday, the Baptist Ministers Conference of Nashville voted unanimously to support the students. These were 79 congregations throwing their weight behind the students. The preachers also called for a boycott of downtown businesses that practiced segregation. As the days ticked on, there were more sit-ins with more students at more stores throughout downtown Nashville. And they spread to other cities. In nearby Chattanooga, a race riot broke out. On February 27th, two weeks after the first Nashville sit-in, student activists held another sit-in. Crowds of white youth gathered. They taunted and harassed the demonstrators. They pulled them from their seats and beat them. 19-year-old American Baptist student Bernard Lafayette was there. And what happened is they arrested the white student, brought the black students out of the store, and then locked the door behind them. And when that happened, that meant that the black students were standing on the sidewalk, and they arrested Paul LePrat, who was a white student. They beat him up because they were more uh, resentful towards whites who were involved. And so we had to figure out a way to get back in that store and get back on those stools. Students heard about it from all over the different colleges and universities. Tennessee State University, Fisk University, American Baptist College. The word got out and they came down in droves. When police arrived, they arrested 81 black protesters but not one of the attackers. The trial for the sit-in participants happened within days and got a lot of local and national media attention. A crowd of thousands lined the street to show their support. The students were found guilty of disorderly conduct and chose to serve time in jail rather than pay a $50 fine. On March 3rd, Nashville Mayor Ben West announced the formation of a biracial committee to seek solutions to Nashville's problems. The committee included the presidents of Fisk University and Tennessee State, 
but there were no student activists. The committee met multiple times over the next month, then delivered its recommendation, partial integration of the lunch counters. Each store should have a section for whites only and another section for whites and blacks. The student leaders rejected the plan as morally unacceptable. They resumed the sit-ins and ramped up the boycotts. Anytime the student protesters were arrested, they were represented by a group of 13 lawyers led by a man named Z. Alexander Luby. This is an extraordinary, largely self-made man. Luby was born in Antigua. When he was a young child, his mother died giving birth. When he was a teenager, his father died. At 15, Luby came to the United States as an orphan, attended Howard University, and went on to earn a law degree. And so this man is not by any means a slouch. He is in large part carrying the movement by virtue of his legal mind and expertise and also by his mentorship of other black attorneys in the city. On April 19, 1960, at 5.30 in the morning, someone threw dynamite through a front window in Luby's home in North Nashville. Luby and his wife were sleeping in the back of the house, but they were uninjured. And when the students of the movement, the students of the city, and broader Black Nashville, just in and of itself, got wind that someone had bombed Z. Alexander Luby's home, where he lived with his family. The force so strong that it blew out the windows in the gymnasium at Fisk University a block away. You know, it's just some things you just can't stand for. Black folks swallow a whole lot of stuff, but then it gets to critical mass and it's just, it's too much. It was a tipping point. So it always is a, a particular admixture of realities that come together in these moments to really, really tee black people off to the point where they're like, look, I don't care about my job. I don't care about my house. I care about my kids. But let me tell you one thing. This is what you're not going to do. You're not going to be bombing Z. Alexander Luby's home. That's what you're not going to do. They took to the streets. Some people say 3,000 of them marching to the courthouse to say, you know what? <laughs> you done beat up on us. You done put us in a paddy wagon. You done put us in jail. People have spat on us. People have threatened our little children. You know, you've done all kinds of things to us. But right now, this is what you're not going to do. This foolishness that you tried here today. It's a seminal moment in Nashville history and in the broader history of the movement itself thousands of black people in a winding, continuous line, seemingly unending, marching in unified spirit to the courthouse. The leader of the march, Fisk University student Diane Nash, confronted the mayor on the steps of City Hall. You know, <laughs> Diane Nash at this point is like, you know, we ain't got nothing more to lose. It's gotten to the point where it's very obvious uh, we're risking our literal lives. You know, do you think now, I ain't asking you about your large brother, your neighbor, your friend, what your daddy, but I'm not asking, I'm asking you, do you think that segregation is wrong? And he's put on the spot. Um, and I don't know that he does what his conscience tells him to do or what 
a politician, most politicians would do in that moment, which is to give the answer that they think would go over best. <laughs> but he gives the honest answer for whatever reason that he did. And he says, no, I, I do not. I do not believe that it's right. Nash then asked the mayor if he thought the lunch counters should be desegregated. West answered yes, but added, that's up to the store managers, of course. After weeks of secret negotiations, department store managers and protest leaders reached an agreement. On prearranged days, small groups of specifically chosen Black students would sit down at lunch counters and order food. The staff would be prepared ahead of time. On May 10th, the test run started, with groups of two or three students arriving at a handful of downtown lunch counters. They ordered, were served, and left without incident. The plan worked. The lunch counters were integrated without further violence, and the boycott of downtown stores was ended. Over the next few years, there were more sit-ins in Nashville, as student activists fought to integrate restaurants, movie theaters, public restrooms, swimming pools, and other segregated spaces. Martin Luther King Jr. praised the Nashville sit-in movement as the best organized and the most disciplined in the Southland. Coming up on the next episode of the Tennessee Civil Rights Trail podcast, we travel back in time to 1956, as 12 students become the first to integrate a previously all-white school in Tennessee. When we walked down that hill and walked up them steps, they were just out there meeting us and, and hollering at us. But when you talk to other people, talk, oh, it wasn't nothing, I was, well, that's them. To me, it was a hellacious, terrifying situation. After listening to the podcast, you can learn more about these sites. Go to tncivilrightstrail.com to begin planning your trip. In this episode, we heard from Crystal DeGregory, a research fellow at Middle Tennessee State University Center for Historic Preservation. Katie Range Briggs, the manager of exhibitions and collections at the National Museum of African American Music in Nashville. And Bernard Lafayette, the Tennessee Civil Rights Trail podcast is sponsored by the Tennessee Department of Tourist Development. The series was produced by Ingredient Creative, with Tanner Latham as executive producer and Tanya Ott as the writer. Elliot Majerzik edited and mixed the sound. And research was provided by Archival Ninjas. Mm-hmm.